Good morning. I know it was mentioned during announcements, but in case you uh, missed it or you couldn't hear hear them, I, I did want to mention that we have our, our young men's training service uh, after kind of our abbreviated worship service tonight. So if you are a young man or you're the parents of a young man and I have not spoken to you yet or you haven't and you want to be involved in that, uh, please come let me know right after service and we'll get you involved to participate in some way. Um, it's, an, it's an awesome, awesome thing the church can do to get... Uh, to get the young folks involved in any way possible, I think. For the, the better part of the last month or so uh, that I've been here, we've been talking about a lot of similar and kind of overlapping ideas. Uh, what it means to be the church, what it means to be the church of Christ, what it means to be His kingdom, what it means to, to participate, to serve in that kingdom, and how that participation should transform us, and how inwardly, spiritually, we should be transformed, and our actions externally should reflect that internal transformation. And we've been talking about these ideas, because if I could kind of sum up what I've been hearing and uh, sort of seeing and just picking up from you guys in the month or so that we've been had the opportunity to get to know you, to, to talk to you, to visit you, to spend time and meals together. If I had to put everything that I've been gathering in that time into really one word, it would be uh, healing. In terms of what we need as sort of a spiritual family, that's really the first word that comes to mind. And as an example, when, when your body sustains physical injury... You know, say you get a gash or a wound, or an the first thing you do, obviously, is you clean it, right? You disinfect it, you, you, you purge it of foreign material, pathogens, bacteria, things of, you know, to prevent infection. And I have uh, seen, heard, kind of been a part of a, a few different congregations in my life. And a lot of times when congregations go through periods of, of shrinking membership, especially when it's due to situations like uh, dissolving an eldership or changing preachers, um, Oftentimes, the people who stay and the people who stick with the church, even in these potentially unstable times, are often stronger. The people who stay behind to make the commitment to say, we're going to be a part of this church through thick and thin, no matter what, what changes or things sort of happen. And the people who make that decision to commit are an integral part of the rebuilding of that congregation. But continuing with kind of the illustration, the, like I said, the first thing you do is clean it. And the next thing that happens is your body releases these tiny little cells called platelets. And platelets are coagulants, which means they cause the blood to clot, to, to slow down, to stop. And they facilitate scabbing and the formation of scar tissue. And uh, my apologies if you are not in the medical field and I've already disgusted you and your mind is just turned off. But stick with me for a moment here. Because what your body does after you sustain injury is it begins the process of literally sewing itself back together which in and of itself is probably a lesson on God's wonderful creation. But what I'm saying is that it, it interconnects and it forms this tissue that pulls it shut and it closes off and it forms and eventually to return to its normal pre-injury state. And the point to this long-winded and perhaps disgusting analogy is that both cleaning and reconnection are critical to recovery. And if we as a church are to continue to heal... We need to continue to clean and reconnect. We need to purge within ourselves, as we were talking this morning, the divisiveness, hatefulness, gossipiness, things that are counter to that healing process. And we need to, in its place, continue to foster positive, uplifting, and edifying relationships. So, something I noticed really quickly, uh, and I've actually mentioned this to a few people already, something I noticed right away is that 
We are a church that cares about one another. And I don't just mean that to say it from the pulpit to sound nice and to sound happy and, you know, sunshiny. But I've noticed that, for example, if somebody is sick or someone's not here, I'm not the only person asking where is so-and-so or who is it, which is really good because I wouldn't know for the first few weeks, to be quite honest, if someone wasn't here. But it's good that we, that we should care about one another, that we should know who, who the healthy, who the sick, who the shut-in, the, what they're dealing with, that we bear one another's burdens, that we're connected. And so I guess I should say, as 1 Thessalonians 5.11 does, continue to do this just as you are already doing. Do so more and more. But in keeping with all these ideas, I, I've mentioned it kind of at the top, I, I want us to look at a passage from Ezekiel. So if you have your Bibles, turn with us this morning to Ezekiel 37. I believe this is our first time studying the Old Testament since I've, since I've been here. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, so just to recap a little bit. Ezekiel is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. His, his writings are kind of towards the back of the Bible because they happen later chronologically in terms of how the nation of Israel develops. Many of the major events on the timeline that we would be familiar with, things like the Exodus, things like King David and King Saul and, and Solomon, things like that have already really happened. And in fact, we're in a part where after First and Second Samuel, after First and Second Kings, after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel has begun to rapidly decline. The kingdom becomes divided into north and south, and then it slowly starts falling piece by piece into disarray. It starts falling victim to the world powers that are around it. The prophets actually often say that the people went after other gods, gods of other nations, and so the Israelites found themselves eventually conquered by these other nations. And Ezekiel arrives on the scene after a pretty big landmark event known as the Babylonian Exile. Babylon, one of the major players kind of in this time period, it captures Jerusalem, ransacks their city, the capital city of Israel. And it does something kind of unprecedented in Israel's history. It takes all of the, really the important Israelites, all the, really the upper class, the elite, the socially connected, the religiously connected, the kings, the leaders, the political movers and shakers of Israel. It takes all of them, captures them, and sends them back to Babylon. Because they say, we're not going to kill all of you. But we want to conquer this nation mentally, politically. We want to completely take them over. So they take all of really the top third to a quarter of the people in that city in terms of wealth, in terms of resources, in terms of power, and they ship them off to Babylon. And so the people who are left are really destitute. They are lost. They have no money. They have no resources. They have really nobody to guide them out of the situation that they're in. The exile is this event that all but destroys the nation of Israel. And this is the situation that Ezekiel and many of the prophets who come after him find themselves in. People are struggling economically. They're living very much day to day. They don't know where food is coming from because the crops and the farmland is all gone. They're mentally and emotionally traumatized from losing brothers and sisters, from families being split apart. And spiritually, they are very very lost. Sir, questions circle in their head like, why would God let this happen to us? Are, are we not the people of God? Are we not the people of God? Are we not in the promised land like he told us we should be? Are we, has God forsaken us? These are the questions these people are asking of men like Ezekiel. 
And so the book of Ezekiel and many of these later prophets has, has the message to people like this, to people who find themselves in that sort of situation. Chapter 37 specifically is far and away the most popular chapter of Ezekiel. Uh, it's the most common section to study out of. It's not, a, it's not very often you hear people teach out of Ezekiel, but if you have heard a lesson out of it, I can almost guarantee you it is out of chapter 37. Chapter 37 is titled, The Valley of the Dry Bones. Usually when I'm studying a scripture, I like to kind of wander off the beaten path a little bit, but we'll stick with the classics this morning. So like I said, if you have your Bibles, turn with us to Ezekiel chapter 37, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophecy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now that I'm thinking about it with all the skeletons, this would have been a great lesson for next weekend, but I guess I need to get a calendar. Ezekiel makes two observations when he finds himself in this valley. Uh, that he is surrounded by bones and that the bones themselves are, quote, very dry. Not to get too morbid, but wet bones would obviously be fresh. Ezekiel is just telling us these bones are very, very old. Whatever was here has been dead for a very, very long time. And something, something to keep in mind anytime we study the Old Testament, especially when we find ourselves in the prophets, of which Ezekiel is one, is that the men of God, like Ezekiel, we're actually held to a different standard than the rest of the people of Israel. I know in our classes all the time we talk about how we are all one and we do not have different standards and we shouldn't have a divide between clergy and laity and things like that. But in the Old Testament under the law, there was a very stark divide between the men of God, who, like the priests and the prophets, people who performed spiritual rites and spiritual acts and sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. These people were held to a higher standard, particularly... When it came to cleanliness, to the idea of keeping themselves clean. And, and cleanliness means a lot of things in the ancient Jewish context, but at a minimum, it meant following something we call the holiness code. The holiness code can be found uh, in its entirety in Leviticus. If you're just bored or having trouble sleeping at night and you're interested in some light reading, you can find all of it there. But the relevant part from our lesson is from Leviticus 21.1 which says a priest must not make himself unclean by touching a dead person. And Leviticus 21 actually goes on in very legal fashion to detail when a priest can and cannot be near a dead body to perform funerals and, and how closely they must be related to that person to even be permitted to touch them just to prepare the body for the funeral. And then all the things that they have to do if they do touch or come near it or they come near someone who has come near... Like, you get what I'm saying? Not only could they not touch people, but this was a very important thing that they not be near dead things. Especially dead things that were not used for sacrificial purposes or, or dead things that had already begun to decay. 
men of God were supposed to handle sacrifices and burn the incense and lead the worship of the Lord. So they were to keep themselves clean. They were to refrain from being near dead things. Yet, here we find Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. And in fact, not only do we find him here, but the beginning of the text actually says the Lord brought him here. Which is kind of the first observation I want us to make. And that is that the Lord has brought Ezekiel to a very unusual location. Obviously, if you and I were dropped in a valley of dead bones, we would be uh, very unsettled, very unnerved. We would find that very unusual. But ever more so for Ezekiel, this, this man who is supposed to be a holy man of God. If given the choice to, to preach the word of God, to prophesy, as the text says, anywhere of his choosing... Uh, never in a million years would Ezekiel choose to go work in a, in a graveyard or really a boneyard. Maybe he would have gone to Jews in the temple. Maybe he would have gone to the city center where everybody is, to the town square. But he almost certainly would have gone to wherever living people were, right? <laughs> but no, the Lord brings him to the Valley of Dry Bones. It's odd. It's unusual. It is an unusual location. I'm not sure if this terminology is still used, but in the early days of cell phones, if you, were, if you were driving along and you were talking to somebody and your call just dropped and you looked down and you suddenly had no signal, you would say that you were in a dead zone. Stephen King wrote a whole book kind of portraying off the pun of the dead zone and dead people. But you would say, oh, I'm in a dead zone. I'm somewhere where I'm not connected. I'm not close enough to any nearby cell tower. It's somewhere out of reach, disconnected from the, the, the network, the grid. I personally have come to find Stewart County is full of dead zones, especially if you have T-Mobile. Ask me about that later. But God brings Ezekiel to a, a dead zone. Not only is it quite literally full of dead people, but, but it's a dead zone in the sense that this is an area that is so disconnected from Ezekiel's everyday life. If you read the, the, the book of Ezekiel, he does a lot of weird things and a lot of crazy illustrations. In many ways, he's a, he's a walking PowerPoint, an object lesson for the Word of God all throughout his life. Doing things like cutting his hair or breaking bread a certain way or laying on one side just to prove this point to the people of Israel. Yet in all of his travels, he has yet to find himself in the middle of a boneyard. So it's a dead zone. This is not... This is not somewhere Ezekiel would find himself. And if I could draw parallels from this passage to our own lives, I would say we have two kinds of, of dead zones. The first one, the first kind of dead zone, is very similar to the, the physical situation that Ezekiel finds himself, like we've been talking about, the, the valley of bones. It's a dead zone in the sense that it's not somewhere Ezekiel wants to go, nor is it somewhere he would ever really go. In his everyday life, it's not even—it's not somewhere he would seek out people or things. It's not somewhere he would go to just try and find the presence of the Lord. In fact, it would be the furthest thing from his mind. And yet, that is exactly where the Lord brings him to prove his point. And this way, we might be reminded of a passage like Luke five, when 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 Jesus calls Matthew or Levi the tax collector. And when he dines with sinners, the Pharisees ask, and the text actually says the Pharisees grumble at him, saying, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And of course, Jesus says the famous line, that it is not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. This kind of spiritual dead zone we could almost call blind spots. They're places in our lives that 
when we look at it, when we drive by it, when we pass through there, we see nothing of spiritual value. It's not somewhere we would ever go. And, and maybe it's for good reason. Maybe it's somewhere we don't want to associate with ourselves. Maybe like Ezekiel, we just we want to keep ourselves spiritually clean. So we say, well, I'm never going to go there. And what we do is we say, not only am I never going to go there, but we start to see that as a place of no spiritual value. Because whether we acknowledge it or not, we tend to divide the world up into tiers of people that we would think would be most accepting or most tolerant of hearing the gospel, the people who would, who, who would enjoy us sharing some of our faith of what we believe. And then over here, the people who would never listen to us, who would never understand the Bible, and would certainly never accept Christ. Except, the problem with that mentality is that says, those people are exactly where we need to go. He says those are exactly who we should go preach to. 1 Timothy 1.9 says, The law was not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. The list in 1 Timothy 1 goes on. But if we think about all the people that we would sort of consider the most depraved and lost and separated and, and the most spiritually sick... You know, the kind of people that we would say, well, you would never find that person in a church building. The gospel says that is exactly the kind of people who need to hear the message that Jesus has to bring them. As he says, it is those who are well have no need of a physician. In Ezekiel 37, the Lord brings the prophet to a valley of bleach, white, bone-dry skeletons. And he says, can these bones live. Look at verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord of God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he has commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. We need not ever underestimate the power of, the Word of God can have on people. Don't, don't ever underestimate it. Remember that it is, it is with His words that God brought the very universe into existence in Genesis 1. That it's with His words that He said, let there be light, and there was light. It was with His words that Jesus yelled to His friend Lazarus, come out in John eleven forty three, 43, when He raises someone from the dead. And it is the Word of God spoken by the prophet Ezekiel at the Lord's command here in chapter 37 that brings literally dry bones to life. We should not underestimate the power of the Word of God. As Christians, we, we need to identify those blind spots in our lives, those places that we are not looking for anybody or anything of spiritual value and recognize that those are the exact places that need us the most. We need to figure out how to get the message, to get the truth out there to those people. And that means looking in places that we would not expect and actually seeing people that we are used to ignoring. I mentioned that there are two kinds 
of dead zones. And the second one, the second one is a dead zone in the sense of connection. And if the first one is maybe external, this, this second one is more internal. That just like a dead zone when talking about cell phone signal is a place where uh, you are disconnected. I think we all have dead zones in our life. And when we are in this location or we are among these people, we tend to or want to disconnect from God. Sometimes this is a, a physical, geographical location. Like perhaps a bar or a particular friend's house or, or even somewhere like school or work. But in this spiritually disconnected dead zone, we, we want to hide our faith. We want to maybe not... We want to kind of pretend that God doesn't see us when we're here so that when we engage in the things that we want to engage in, it really doesn't count. We might hide our faith or at least keep it a little private when we're around certain groups or in certain places. There are certain people that we allow into our lives when we are around them and we allow ourselves to disconnect from God. And we act like somebody we're not or at least like somebody we as Christians should not be. I'll go a step further and say for many Christians, this concept that I'm describing, this idea of a spiritually disconnected dead zone, is literally anywhere not a church building. They go out the door, and the moment they are leave, they are done thinking about God, about their faith, about their beliefs, about the Bible, about anything that could affect them spiritually until they set foot in a church again. But Christians... The people of God, the children of God, should never be disconnected from Him. We should certainly never desire to distance ourselves from Him, especially in the sense of, of giving in to sin so that we may pursue some kind of temptation. The simplest scripture that really combats this double-minded sort of thinking is in Matthew 22, 22, 37, or Deuteronomy 6.5, when He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And another one of the prophets around the time of Ezekiel in Jeremiah 29, 13, the Lord says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God says, if you want to find me, search with all your heart. We need to identify and combat the spiritual dead zones in our life where we are disconnecting from God, where we have that part of us that we are unwilling to submit to God. These kinds of dead zones are really just as dangerous in the first. In the first kind, we're neglecting and denying people who need the Word of God most. And when we, when we do this, we, we really are denying the Word of God's power in some aspect of our own life. When we withhold some part of our life from Him, from obedience. When we do that, we're ultimately limiting the power of God. We're saying, I want you to transform me, but only this much. I want to submit to you, but only this much. I pray that when my day comes, the Lord's forgiveness is not so limited. In Matthew sixteen twenty six, he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What more important thing is there in your life than getting your entire life and your entire being, your entire person in order? 
we have to be willing to submit our entire selves to God in service and obedience to him. Before we close our lesson this morning, I want to read a bit more from the text from Ezekiel 37. And I want us to understand why obedience, as we've been talking about it, to his commands is, is so important. Even, even in the strangest of things, like when God says, prophesy to these dead bones. Look at verse 11. Look at how our passage ends in verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. In Ezekiel 37, the first transformation is physical. The, the, the bleached white, long dead, dry bones spring to life, and it says they grow muscle and sinew and skin and flesh. But the next transformation, there's really no word for it other than spiritual. It says there was no breath in them. There was no life in them. These bodies that were once bone were still soulless, lifeless. Until God again commanded Ezekiel, speak life into the bones. It's that same command, prophesy. Prophesy. I know we've talked about a few different things from this, from this text already, but one of the reasons I chose this particular passage of Ezekiel is because of the powerful powerful transformation that occurs and you'll notice that it, that it happens at the command of God at the very word of God it's not even God himself who speaks into the bones but it's God who imparts his word into Ezekiel and he tells Ezekiel go out and speak my word to these dry bones we cannot neglect the power of the word of God if you notice in this passage, it's actually this title, Son of Man, that is applied to Ezekiel, or in some translations, Son of Adam. God is reminding Ezekiel that he is flesh, he is mortal, he is human. It is with God who the power of this transformation lies. God is the source of this transformation. He commands the prophet on what to do, but it is Ezekiel who, who has to go out and speak the word into these dry bones. Do we understand the illustration yet? <laughs> the last words Jesus gives to his disciples is go out into the world, preach the gospel, teach them everything I have commanded you. And he's trying to tell us that that, that transformative power that lies within God, that lies within his word, he is, he is trying to give us if we will go out and speak it to people. Which means identifying and removing spiritual dead zones to, to stop ignoring the people that we might think to ignore and to start to see those kind of people who need the word of God most but then also reflecting in ourselves and, and recognizing that we need to give the entirety of ourselves to God it is God's own word that will transform us if we let it if we allow it to it is prophecy in our text, the word of God spoken by Ezekiel at the command of the Lord that brings 
life to the dead. He's got a word that calls us to repent. To turn from our way of living and turn 